Welcome to the final episode of the second season of the Coral Project's No Baton Needed podcast. Chris Wilmore here, the executive audio engineer and sometimes host. Before we dive in, we want to ask you to spread the word about the No Baton Needed podcast. Maybe grab your friend's unattended phone and subscribe him or her to the podcast by searching for No Baton Needed on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast streaming service they use. And if you want a less creepy and intrusive option, maybe share your favorite episode via social media while also liking, subscribing to, and reviewing our podcast on any and all podcast streaming services. Now, on to this episode, featuring internationally renowned choral conductor Maria Guinand, whose conducting technique the Los Angeles Times described as, quote, a combination of Pierre Boulez-like precision and the authority of a dancing Gustavo Dudamel, end quote. Take it away, Daniel. Hello, Maria. Hello, Daniel. Bienvenido. Al No Baton Needed, our, the Coral Projects podcast. We're very excited to have you be part of our season. Uh, this season, we're celebrating diversity, representation, and inclusion in the choral community. So I first wanted to just do a little bit of background for our listeners. Uh, I first learned about you, Maestra, I think in 1997 or 8, I saw you, rather, I first saw you work at an American Choral Directors Convention you did a whole session on music from Latin America, which I was very interested in because my mother is from Chile. And it was terrific. You talked a lot about how the music in Latin America developed in different ways, depending on where they were located geographically and their influences from other countries and trade and things like that. It was, it was very exciting. But I actually knew about you before that through Earth Songs, the publishing company, because you have so many wonderful editions of music and just have done a tremendous amount for the choral art. So we're really thrilled to have you be part of this. So let's just dig right into it. You've lectured everywhere, and, and we were lucky to find a TED Talk of you in 2012, which is so exciting. And you mentioned in your TED Talk, you said, human beings have something marvelous, which we assume is always there, and that's the voice. And that little thing we call our voice is the best musical instrument we have. All human beings that can speak and hear can sing. So I would love it if you could expand on this a little bit more for our listeners and, and how you arrived at this ethos. Well, uh, thank you very much, Daniel, for your introduction and for the invitation to be in your podcast. It's always a great pleasure for me to talk to different audiences and to continue being an ambassador of uh, choral music and especially of choral music from Latin America. When I said that, it's nothing new for me. It's something I believe truly. Because in my work over more than 45 years conducting choirs, very few times I have had the, let's say, I don't know if it's a privilege or not privilege, to audition singers and turn down singers and tell, them, tell people you cannot sing or you cannot get in my choir or whatever. I have had to teach from scratch many years, many singers. And I have had so many wonderful results in my life that we have been able to build a huge family of choral singers who have become, some of them, wonderful musicians, others wonderful singers, other music educators, choral directors, or just wonderful professionals who love singing, who love music, and who are wonderful human beings. So I do believe that I should even expand that premises today, because at that time I had not worked 
with children or young people who were deaf. And I have, at this point in my life, I have. So at that moment, I said, if you can hear and if you can talk, of course, you can sing. You can sing. I mean, your instrument is there. What I meant is that your instrument is there. You just need to develop it, to train it. For me, the best way to explain it is if you know how to move, you can go into the water and somebody can teach you very quickly how to swim and you will not drown yourself. If you can walk, you will be able to run. But even if you cannot walk today, you can also run because they have been developing so many things for the uh, handicapped people. So I think that this is nothing new. I love that premise because sometimes I have found in my life people, adult people who feel very shy when they are together singing a song in a party or in a park or sharing happy birthday to you. And if people say to me, oh, please don't listen to me because I don't know how to sing. I am terribly. And I say, just sing, sing. I mean, dare to do it. And it's just a memory that you need to develop of how to sing in tune because it's a memory of some parameters. And then coming to the handicapped, I have had the chance to work with the coro de manos blancas, you know, for children who are deaf and cannot speak. And even if they are not able to produce a sound with their voices, they can produce a sound with their hands with their eyes, with their bodies, with their souls. So they can feel the energy of the singing, they can feel the vibrations, and they can understand how music is going around them. So I think that music and singing particularly is an art that should be taught to all human beings. I mean, the same way we learn to draw a little house or to know how to write the alphabet, or to write our names, we should know that we have a beautiful gift, which is an instrument that we can produce sound that goes beyond speaking words, that can be sounds of what we call music, organized sounds or disorganized, but we can create other sounds with our instrument. And also it's important that we understand that we have to take care of that instrument too. The same way we have to take care of other parts of our body. Sometimes children, they don't understand really how it works and how it can be heard. And even adults don't understand how can they hear their voices forever. So I think we should, um, this is something that has to be taught to everybody. It's part of your body. It's interesting how different countries, for example, in the United States, we went through a period where the government defunded a lot of arts programs, where prior to that, you just in elementary school, when you were a child, singing was part of your education. It is just something that you did. And, and just in the same way that you would go outside to move around and play to work your body, there was actually a unit in class where you were just going to sing as a group. It didn't have to be perfect. It didn't have to be competition ready. It just was about using your voice in a new way and creating a sense of community through that. I, I love all that. And of course, we don't have time, but at some point I would love to pick your brain about your experience working with Los Manos Blancos, that organization, and some of the work that you've done working with singers that have some hearing impairment. But that's just beautiful. 
I want to talk a little bit about your background because some of our listeners might not know who you are. You're an accomplished choral director, a professor of music. You founded many choruses. You have many conducting awards from all over the world. You're a two-time Grammy Award nominee, published music producer and director of many recordings, just to name a few highlights in your career. Could you share with us an early music memory, maybe a memory that you can pinpoint as the beginning of your love for music and the path that it was going to set for you? Well, perhaps I can share some moments in my childhood. I was introduced to music through my mother and my mother's family because my great-grandfather was a very important flutist and composer in Venezuela in the late 19th century. And his wife was a wonderful pianist. So in my house, music was always uh, something that my mother and my grandmother particularly wanted all children to learn. So I was introduced to music by Alberto Grau, who is my husband today. (laughs) So he was my first music teacher, my first piano teacher. And some memories I have from my childhood is that really when I started learning piano first, and then I went to the music school, that was after school, that was not in the school. I loved it. Those days were really very happy moments for me. And I had wonderful teachers at that time. I remember my first uh, solfege teacher, and you could say solfege is so boring to learn, but he was a man of so much creativity. He had learned in France, Dalcroze uh, methodology, and he was such a happy man and a, a wonderful pedagogue that I will never miss his classes. That was something really important for me. Then later on in my life, I wasn't sure I wanted to be a musician when I finished my high school. And uh, I went to university also to study education in physics and mathematics simultaneously to music. And I remember that it was one day I went to a concert in Caracas. It was Tchaikovsky Piano Concerto with a wonderful pianist, uh, of a Cuban pianist. I remember his name, Horacio Gutierrez. He was a great pianist. And uh, the week before, I had heard Marta Argerich in Caracas, too. She's my favorite. <laughs> yeah, uh, playing Rachmaninoff, uh, number two. And I remember that that week, I was really puzzled. At some point, I thought, do I really want to be an educator in physics and mathematics, or rather I'll be an educator in music. And then I changed my subject, that's clear. And I think it was the emotion I felt from those wonderful performances what really impelled me to decide to study music. That's fantastic. Ugh, I would have loved to hear those concerts. <laughs> I'm a pianist first too, so I'll uh, just... And uh, you mentioned uh, your husband, Alberto Grau. The Coral Project has sung some of his music, including Casarami Lagai, which is on our very first album way back when. So if any of our fans or alums, if you recognize that name, that's why. It's a very innovative composer. Yes.
in addition to your husband, who inspires you as a musician and a conductor? Well, I think I have I have had many different mentors and and people around me that have inspired in my career as a musician in a direct way. Let's say because you may have people you admire but you don't know them, but people you, I have had contact. Of course, Alberto Grau was my first mentor, but also in Venezuela I had another mentor very important who was Alberto's mentor called Gonzalo Castellanos. He was a very important mentor for me and Angel Sauce, a wonderful composer too. And in Caracas, I had also as a mentor from music point of view, but also from a social work and music and social work and organization point of view and you know, a dreamer who was Jose Antonio Abreu, the founder of El Sistema, with whom I had the luck, the opportunity to work for more than 35 years. And in some years, like 15 years, I was really very close to his work and to his development. So those people I find giants, not only in the music making, but also in the way of passing their legacy to young people and their enthusiasm for music and for the country, for Venezuela. Later on, I had the opportunity to work with Helmut Rilling in his master classes, and I became his assistant in many projects, uh, both in Stuttgart and in Venezuela. We founded uh, Baja Academy, uh, and we worked together for more than 25 years. So that was a great, great mentor for me. But also, I was always very inclined to sacred music and to develop other areas of sacred music. But I loved especially Renaissance sacred music. And I, I felt the need to study in depth Gregorian chant. So I met two wonderful masters, one from Germany, another one from Switzerland, Luigi Agustoni and Johannes Bergmann-Göschel, who were a part of the scholars who worked at Solesm with all the new semiology. And uh, I had the opportunity to work with them for more than 15 years in different projects that we did in Venezuela, but also went to Cremona to the Gregorian Chant Academies. So, you know, I have had, and then, of course, composers. It's been wonderful to have Alberto as a composer in residence all our life in the Scola, but also, for instance, Guido Lopez Gavilan from Cuba, great composer and to have worked with Osvaldo Golihov. Oh, he's phenomenal, yeah. Yeah, to have worked with John Adams because we had the opportunity to work with him very much and uh, to, to stage with Peter Sellers. So this has been stellar moments in my life, but also I have learned very much from my singers and from each one of them. From every situation where we have had and not only to sing what we have practiced and prepared, but when we had to improvise or when we had to create something different or where we had to run and to change a program. You know, I have learned so much from my own country, you know, that I think that every day keeps being a learning day. And as you're speaking, it, it's I catch myself and there's just a huge, huge geyser of talent coming out of Venezuela. Just an incredible country. And it, I'm assuming that you had an opportunity at one point to work with Maestro Dudamel Gustav, 
um, who's the current conductor of the LA Philharmonic. He is a product of La Sistema, which you, our listeners may Yes. Well, I remember Gustavo Dudamel very well when I first met him. I think he was 14 years old. And uh, in that time, that was in the 90s, in the 90s, in that time, we were working very hard in Venezuela to get uh, El Sistema recognized by the government and um, giving the funding it, it was needed and all that. So we needed to do sometimes many, what we call in Spanish, muestras. A muestras is not a concert, but it's like a small concert for authorities or for people who, yeah, you know, to, to showcase, like a showcase. And to touch the soul of the people who could decide, government-wise, that that was a very important project. So we had to do many of those, many, many, many of those. And um, with the Fundación Scola Cantorum de Venezuela, which is the organization that Alberto Grau created, the choral organization, and the um, Movimiento Coral Cantemos, which is uh, the gathering of many choirs, we were, during more than 35 years, like the a choral arm of El Sistema, who was devoted mainly to orchestras, to, to youth orchestras and later to children orchestras. And I remember one of these showcases was going to be the last movement of Beethoven Ninth, of course. And um, Maestro Abreu, we had prepared the choirs, and we were in a room that was not a concert hall or anything. It was just a a room in a place where we were teaching, but it, it was a big room. And we had a big choir and a big orchestra, and the authorities were going to come the next day. And Maestro Abreu tells us, well, I want a very young man that's coming from Barquisimeto to be the conductor of this uh, showcase tomorrow, because he was always showcasing also young conductors. And then we said, okay, perfect. Uh, well, bring him. So we saw this tiny, because Gustavo is not too tall, he's small, and he was thin, and with his little glasses and his curly hair coming on the podium, and um, no score, you know, and his baton. And then this teenager, because he was a teenager, 14 years old, started to conduct the fourth movement of Beethoven Ninth, with such a passion, deep knowledge. Every instruction he gave the orchestra and the choir was so clearly verbalized, so precise, so mature, that we were all in awe. I mean, we, we said, but who is this? <laughs> <laughs> and I, when we finished, we went to hug him and say, well, where do you come from? Well, I am from Marquisimeto, and this is the first time I'm conducting such a big choir and a big orchestra. I am very nervous. And after that, of course, we saw him grow up and we saw him developed through. Uh, perhaps this was uh, what I'm telling you that was in 1995, 96, something like that. I mean, Gustavo, I think he's from 1982, 80, 81. So he must have been. 95, I think he was 14 years old. Yes, and then after that, we saw him like a rocket. Uh, I remember we organized in Venezuela in year 2000 the America Cantat 3 Festival. 
which is a great, um, huge, it, we had wonderful choral festivals. That was a huge festival. We had about 92 choirs and 3,000 singers and all that. And in that festival, Abreu wanted to present his children orchestra at that time was the children orchestra with Dudamel conducting. And that children orchestra became, 10 years later, the Simon Bolivar Orchestra that made Dudamel well known all over the world. And uh, that was an amazing moment for everybody. So you've mentioned um, La Escuela Cantorum de Venezuela, and you're the artistic director of that. But you've also been involved with the school and its wonderful programs like uh, Construir Cantando, yes, which, uh, yes. Building Through Singing. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, that program, Construir Cantando, is one of the main programs of Fundación Escola Cantorum de Venezuela. And with that program, we aim to take choral music to schools of low economic resources. I mean, in Venezuela, music has not been in a formal way within the school system. And if you go to the favelas, to the poor areas of the big cities, you will find many schools that will have no chance to have uh, music there. So our program, Construir Cantando, is a program that takes choral music into the school. So we go to the schools, we offer to the school the teachers, you know, the pedagogues of singing and conducting. And we, Escola Cantorum, we pay these teachers and we follow the program. The only condition is that the school gives us space within their academic program, that they give us hours to make the children sing, and then they give us also space in the school, the room, wherever, to do the rehearsals. And of course, we offer the schools that when the school has a celebration, whatever the children are, their children, they will be singing there. But also the children need to be part of a network that we call the program Build by Singing. So they have to go out of the school twice a year to sing and meet with other choirs. So we've been doing that for more than 25, 26 years now. And it has produced beautiful results because we go mainly to primary school. When the children go to the secondary school, then for them we have after-school programs. We assume that they are already so motivated that they want to keep singing and they can come to our programs. And this all is free, no charge. Children do not pay for that. We raise the money, we find the money, we give them the opportunity. That's just fantastic. How long have you been connected with the Scuola Cantorum? Well, I, the, Scuola, the Scuola Cantorum started in 67. And in those years, I was still studying and I was not yet there. But when I finished my studies in England in year 76, I became connected with the Scuola Cantorum until today. So guess 45 years. What a wonderful <laughs> legacy. And speaking of legacies, let's talk about some of your awards, the Grammy nominations. You received two in the same year, one for Grammy Awards, another was for the Latin Grammy Awards. And I was wondering what that recognition meant to you as a musician, a conductor, a woman, Latina, etc. Well, I think first that was a huge surprise <laughs> because we were, ne we were never working towards that. I mean, 
Um, I have never been working towards prizes or awards. It's true. And um, uh, when we were nominated, it was a great, great joy for us. Already to have been recognized and nominated was a great joy for the work we have done together because that was beca- um, for the Golihoff passion. And that was a work where we, as a team, worked together for many years. And um, it brought us to the most beautiful theaters in the world. We met so many wonderful people. We shared through that composition with so many wonderful artists. So I think it's a recognition to a whole momentum that in the life of the Scola Cantorum lasted for about 15 years. As I mentioned before, this season for the podcast is about diversity and multiculturalism and representation. All of the guests we've interviewed could be classified as underrepresented or a minority in the choral community in some way. So I wanted to talk to you about that, your experiences as a Latin woman in the choral world. Have there been challenges around that, or have you found that it's actually created some unique opportunities for you? Well, I think that both. Uh, Let's say the opportunities have been all there. Because what I always tell my colleagues and my fellows and my choirs is that when I came to Venezuela in 1976, after studying in England, I had so many offers to work. It was like getting into a field that needed to be planted, you know, that that needed to be planted. There was nothing there. It's not that we had all the mansions, uh, you know, the machines and the, you know, to trim the, the trees or no, 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 no. We had to do you have to dig yourself, you had to trim yourself, you had to do everything. But they told you, that is your land, you can plant there. Let's see what you can do there. That was the history where I landed. Because El Sistema was one year old, the Escola Cantorum were seven years old, but the leaders of these projects had so many ideas, crazy ideas. We didn't know if that was possible at all to do. And we just embarked ourselves in one idea after other, more crazy than other, and we loved it. You know, when we succeeded, we celebrated. And when we failed, we thought carefully, well, how can we succeed next time? So opportunities, all opportunities. And then from there, we had the opportunity to send to the world a message through our choirs and our orchestra, but especially in my case, through our choirs, of the work we were doing. Because then we became members of the International Federation for Choral Music. We were always active with ACDA, with uh, Europa Cantat, with Asia Cantat. So we wanted to be linked, connected to the world. And that was very important. So every time we had the opportunity to raise money, we would go on tour. And instead of going on tour just to sing three or four concerts, we love to go on tours where we could be part of a festival. We could be part of a gathering of other choirs where we could meet many people. And like that, we did so many tours. And that was the challenge. The challenge was not that I will feel women from Latin America in Europe or in the United States. No, no. My challenge was that I could not explain anybody all the difficulties I had sometimes in my country 
because you know my country has been like a boat like goes up and down up and down now now it's very down i could not explain or justify if the choir was not singing well whatever oh well we are not singing so well because we could not rehearse so many times or because no i told always my singers if other choirs rehearse twice a week and with that they sing excellent we need to rehearse seven times a week to be as excellent. So that was my challenge. And I always told them, are you prepared to do that? You want to be, you know, in the top. So let's work as many hours as we need. And then I was always working with young people, you know, with very passionate people, college students, and they will follow anything I will say, they, they will follow. And that was my challenge, really. That was my big, big challenge because I didn't want to deceive them. I always told them, okay, now I think you are good enough to be able to go and stand up in that competition. And I'm sure that if we don't win a first prize, we will qualify. We will be among the best. So trust me. And it was like that, but that was a challenge, you know, because you never know. But I, I have to say that in my life, I've never felt excluded or diminished because of being a woman or because being Latin. No. no. Great. I mean, I have had so many doors open, but I think that the doors also were open because of, of the effort we were making and because we were thinking responsible. I mean, I never wanted anybody to tell me, okay, I give you this opportunity because you are a woman and you are Latin. No. That would have been an insult for me. I wanted to be given an opportunity because I was good enough to take it. So even, even when I did auditions for masterclasses, you know, with Helmut Rilling in Germany, we were there sitting perhaps 30 students and he was going to choose six to be active and the rest were going to be passive. I think I would have hated to be told, okay, Maria, since you come from so far and you are a woman and Latin, you know, I will give you the opportunity to be active. No. Well, he never did that. I'm very happy that I got accepted both times in the actives because I was uh, doing the best I could and it was good enough to be active. That's wonderful. And it's great to hear that that happened for you. As I'm sure you know, many talented women composers that get denied opportunities for the opposite reasons that you've described. So that's, that's wonderful. And you've done such a tremendous job. I, it, this whole movement that's come out of Venezuela is like a, it is a movement, like a tidal wave of musical growth and it's thrilling. So we're going to talk about recent history. As you know, this last year has been challenging with COVID and a, a disturbing, tragic uprise in racism towards the Black and Asian American communities, Pacific Islander communities, the death of George Floyd, and countless men and women of color as a result of systemic racism. Is there an event in the last decade that has had a profound impact on you or your career? I mean, I think that perhaps the most complex situation that I have had to live through and we are still living through has to do with uh, what has happened in my country, in Venezuela. I mean, you know that Venezuela was a democratic system until 
1998 and well until 2006, I think, we had a democratic electoral system that was working. And Chavez, Hugo Chavez, won legally those elections in 1998. But already he changed the constitution and being a military in 2006, the whole system was twisted into what they want to still say today, 15 years after that, it's a democracy, but it's not anymore. It's a military regime that has been gradually taken over. And it's a very corrupt regime and um, ideologically asking people to be servile to them. So the arts, culture in my country, everything we built with so much strength and effort during so many years has been gradually weakened, you know, by all the difficulties that people are living through. And I think that has been something that I never thought it could happen in my lifetime. I mean, when we thought we could become a country uh, so devastated and uh, with lack of freedom and managed by a mafia of people who are, you know, related to uh, drug dealers and to gold dealers and all that, where human rights are not respected, then it's very hard, you know, it's very hard to keep living in that place and working and keeping your work alive and keeping your voice heard. I am not afraid to talk, you know. Uh, I am in the States now, but I will go back to my country. And I, the Scola Cantorum is alive and we keep working. It's been challenging because we have no funding at all from government or from the state. People have to do enormous sacrifices to come and sing and keep together. And um, I think that has been perhaps the most challenging times in my leadership. I could have quit. I could have gone out and just be a leader in the exile. But I have preferred to stay there. Meanwhile, I can go in and out of the country. And so far, so good. So this is perhaps the most challenging situation because it's, it's not a situation of one day, of one year. I, I was building, I was in a country where we were building during 25 years, like a rocket. And then I have seen in the last 20 how it's going down, you know. So we try to, we try to hold it, to keep it, so that the next gen. I mean, imagine some of the singers I have today, they have not known, they were not witnessing what we did 25 years ago or 30 years ago because they are too young. They only know what they know now. And we have now the responsibility to be the voices of history and tell them, no, don't worry. It was not always like that. It can change. We had something that was different. And I don't tell you that we can go back to that, but we can build something better. This is my challenge today. When people ask me, what do you want to do in the next years of your life? You know, perhaps two decades. I hope I still have strength to go on. I always say I want to keep building a legacy and to keep forming new men and women that can really help this change to come in my country. That's, you're an inspiration. How has COVID affected you in the Scuola Cantorum and the work 
that you're able to do? Well, I think very much uh, like everybody, like everywhere. Yeah, like everyone else, because of course, we could not meet personally. We have been able to meet only through virtuality. And uh, in a country like mine, we are in an economic situation which is very severe. We have been 40 months, that is three years and a half, in what is called hyperinflation. Hyperinflation. So if today it costs one, tomorrow it will be 125, after tomorrow 150, whatever. So people do not have smartphones or the last computer or the best. So we have had to cope to do our meetings with whatever you have. And if you don't have anything, then you have a neighbor or a friend where you can borrow something. So we have had to be very extremely creative to keep our work going. For me, the most important point in this pandemic was to keep the network, to let everybody know that we are a family, not only for singing, but also for supporting each other in difficulties. So we have had to support many of our singers and their families that have had COVID and haven't had enough resources to cure themselves. But at the same time, we have created spaces for singing together, not only with those who are in Venezuela, but with the huge amount of Venezuelans who have left the country in the past five, six years, who have been supporting us. And many of them are singers that love us. And we love each other so much that it's incredible when Alberto and myself, we see the huge family around the world, the globe, that is together, that they want to be together now. Now they have discovered the virtuality of meeting, of doing Zoom, of doing a virtual choir or rehearsal or whatever. And that has been a good impact. The bad impact, of course, is not being able to sing personally. We did some personal singing in late January, February, early March, but now the situation of COVID in Venezuela is very bad and we have no vaccines yet. So we have to wait, but singers are there. I cannot say we have lost so many singers. Singers are still there and want to meet. So I think it's important that we are together. I mean, next Friday, this coming Friday in Venezuela, there will be the, I don't know how you say that in English, the beatification, you know. A blessing. A new, a, new, a new saint, a man who was a wonderful man, a wonderful doctor, a hundred years ago. There has been a whole process in the Catholic Church to name... Canonization is what we call that. Yeah, to canonize him. Yeah. It has, there has been a long, long process. And he, because he was a doctor and he, was a, a, he lived through the Spanish influenza pandemic, yes. And he made a lot of good. Today, for the country, who is a Catholic country, although it's not Catholic, the government is not Catholic, but the people in their faith, he's like, it's like a hope. It's like a, you know, it's like a light, you know. And so this canonization ceremony will be on Friday. And the choir that will be singing is the Scola Cantorum. I, I'm not going to be there, but some of my people, because I, I said I want to, the young generations to do this. And uh, I, we prepare that, you know, uh, as we say in Spanish, contra viento y marea. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how you say that. Against all the winds and all the, and all the waves. 
uh, we prepare that online, offline, whatever. And people are now singing with masks at a distance and preparing for that big event. And I think that gives me uh, joy to see people happy and to see them with desire of singing and living. What advice would you give to somebody, a young person who's thinking about a career in choral music? Well, I think that if you have the, the, in your soul the vocation, how do you say vocation? Vocation. Yeah. To be an educator, to be a teacher, you can be a wonderful conductor. Because being a choral conductor really is about educating into music human beings or educating not only into music, but through music. Because through music, you can share so many values, ideas, worries, uh, dreams. I mean, you can touch the souls of so many people that if you want to do that, then you will be a great choral conductor, no matter where you are. You don't need to be given the best choir. You will make it. You will do it yourself. And what about you? Is there something in your life that really impacted or changed you because you learned something or were told something, some sagely advice from somebody else or a discovery that you made in life? Well, I think that um, the, the love for education comes in my life from, from my early, early ages, uh, early stages in life, from my childhood. And I think I had great mentors in my life, not only as, as musicians, but also from a spiritual point of view, from values, from my parents and from my teachers in childhood. And I, I am grateful for this. They planted so many seeds in my soul, not in one go, but through life. And they, they gave me, I don't know, perhaps the, the idea or the, to be aware, to be open, to be alive, and to understand, you know, this is good, I should take it, or no, this is not so good, perhaps I should go. Of course, in life, you learn with difficulties more than with happiness. <laughs> and that, I have had the, the chance to have people who have told me that. Different people, non-musicians, non-musicians, doctors, psychologues, friends, gurus. <laughs> Yes, yeah, yeah. So as we're getting close to the end of our questions, I want to ask, is there a piece of music that would qualify as your favorite? Or maybe a piece of music you've conducted numerous times that resonates with you? Bach B minor mass. <laughs> that, that will be, that's what resonates with me most. And what is it about that work that you connect with? I mean, I... Through that complex, let's say, musical work, I connect to the soul of a composer like uh, Johann Sebastian Bach that teaches with so much humility, you know, how can you make beauty through sound? And that beauty and that sound can give glory to God, you know, so... I, I connect in a very spiritual way through that music. For me, it's, I am a, I am, yes, I am a religious person and I, I feel connected to music that somehow speaks not only to my beliefs, it's not 
It's not a matter of beliefs or it's a matter of my heart, of my being. I have connected also very much with Hildegard von Bingen for many years, studying that person and her writings, not only the musical writings, but her writings, her scientific writings, her poetry, and admiring that woman in the 12th century being so strong, independent, and influencing kings and popes, you know, I love those spirits. She's a, an extraordinary figure in history. I wish more people knew about her. So as you know, the name of our podcast is No Baton Needed, kind of a lighthearted plan words when we were coming up with it. But we've asked every person we've interviewed, every conductor, what their thoughts on are using a baton or not a baton when you conduct. What are your thoughts? Well, Personally, I tell you, I love to conduct without a baton. Why? Because I am left-handed. Oh. <laughs> and it has always been an issue to use a baton. Of course, sometimes I try to use it with my left hand and it didn't work. And of course, I am left-handed, but my right hand is already uh, is also quite developed. So if I had to conduct an orchestra with a baton, it would be fine. But if I can conduct without a baton, I feel free. I love it. Always the very last set of questions we ask are, it's a segment this season called uh, Would You Rather or Que Prefieres? We like to end every episode with a set of questions, would you rather do this or that? Um, or, for you, or for you, Que Prefieres? So, lista? Lista. Uh, would you rather listen to music with lyrics or without lyrics? With lyrics. Okay. Would you rather your laugh sound like a tuba or your sneeze sound like a piccolo? My laugh like a tuba. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And we're going to... Two food items. Would you rather live in a world without arepas or a world without buñuelos? Without buñuelos. Ah, okay, good. <laughs> And then, uh, would you rather only conduct Christmas music or Beethoven? Christmas music. Oh, good. And then <laughs> lastly, if you could only play one instrument for the rest of your life, would you rather play the triangle or the tambourine? The tambourine. Oh, good. <laughs> well, this has been so wonderful getting to know you. And you've been a great influence on many, many people in the global choral community, even people who have never had the opportunity to meet you. I feel now very lucky because you've influenced my life musically for quite a while now. So now I had a chance to talk to you. So I'm thankful for this gift that you radiate out to make the world a better place through your art. And I'm very grateful that you took time today for us to talk to you about your life experiences and leave us with some gems. Thank you so much, Daniel. I am very happy to have had this talk with you. I enjoy it very, very much. And uh, it, it brings me good memories when you said that you saw, uh, first time we saw, we, we saw each other in ACDA back in the mm -hmm. 90s. I think it was San Diego, perhaps. Yes, it was <laughs> a great convention, yeah. It was a great convention, I remember that. I came to that convention with my university choir. Yep. And, and of course, Earth Songs has been for me a marvelous project. And I am always grateful to my dear friend, 
uh, Ron Jeffers, who passed away, and the founder of Earth Songs, because he was a visionary also to bring so much music unknown uh, for so many choirs and conductors into, into life through his publishing. So I want to make this little uh, acknowledgement to his vision and also to the people who keep the editorial going. Wonderful. Thank you very much. And I wish you with your choral project all the best. Thank you. Uh, I will look again for the Casarmiela Gají from Alberto. Uh, so good. Uh, and, uh, well, enjoy singing, keep singing. Yes. And, uh, and doing so much for the choral family. And you as well. Thank you. Thank you. This episode of the No Baton Needed podcast was hosted by TCP's conductor, founder, and artistic director, Daniel Hughes, produced by Wilson Alexander Aguilar, and I, Chris Wilmore, served as executive audio engineer. As we prepare for season three, we invite you to send us questions. Maybe you're interested in learning about the first public performance of TCP, have a question about auditioning for TCP, or you want to ask Daniel something about his conducting style and technique. To contact us, please email podcast at choralproject.org. No Baton Needed will return in August. In the meantime, have a great summer. <laughs>